I find it fascinating that whenever uh, disasters such as extensive floodings or earthquakes or tsunami or protracted war ha happen, that it's quite common for the media, our television, newspaper reporters and so on, to describe these occurrences as being of biblical proportions. I sometimes wonder what they mean by that phrase, of biblical proportions. I think what they usually mean is that the disaster has been well beyond any kind of human control and has engulfed vast numbers of people. And it's not difficult to think of examples. Last week, wherever we were on Remembrance Sunday, we were casting our minds, especially this year, back to the First World War, some of those awful battles, such as the Battle of the Somme, in which over one million lives were lost in the course of five months. Or the awful fire that took place at Grenfell Towers here in the city of London um, only just 18 months or whatever it was ago and that killed 72 people. The fires that are now raging in California and seemingly uh, almost impossible to control. The recent earthquake and tsunami in Indonesia causing the death of more than 2,000 people. And those are events that put the fear of God into people and over which we seem to have little control. Or political upheavals, whether it's in a coup that's run by, in a country run by a despot or whether it's in a democratic society like our own going through the process of Brexit. How do we react to these enormous events when they take place? Well, there are various ways in which we react. Some people simply, when something happens that seems to be out of our control and that brings disaster and suffering to huge numbers of people, some people simply bury their heads in the sand as long as it's not affecting them. Another way to accept them is in a kind of fatalistic way. A few weeks ago, we had Mike Long speaking to a group of us here one Wednesday evening Mike Long is the Methodist minister in Notting Hill, uh, the church which is just round the corner from Grenfell Towers. And obviously on that occasion he was sharing with us some of the events that had, uh, and ways in which life had unfolded in Notting Hill in the months following the fire. And at one point he was explaining how many of the local Muslim residents had simply an air of tragic resignation about their deaths, these awful deaths. It was the will of Allah. Pure, simple, nothing more complicated than that. And that's how somehow, as he pointed out, seems to cut right across those four or five stages of bereavement that we often identify here in Western society. The denial, the anger, the bargaining, the resentment uh, and the final acceptance not really a healthy response, simply to have an air of resignation when these things happen. But it is another way that people deal with things. Another way, of course, uh, is to respond simply by being paralysed with fear. Think about how our world has been changed since the Twin Tower disaster back in 2001 been a significant destabilization of our world with wars and terror activities that have followed in many different countries. 
And I think through those things that have taken place, we've been reminded of the truth of the words that were spoken well over 50 years ago now by John Kennedy when he was President of the United States of America. When he says, as a human race, we now have it in our control to do almost anything. We have it in our power to make this either the best generation or the last. And by the way in which we behave sometimes, it almost seems as if we are hell-bent on making it the last. It's so easy when we take those, try to take those sort of things into account that we simply curl up into a ball of fear. Another way, of course, is to go out and do something in the face of all these awful tragedies, whether they're man-made sufferings or um, natural disasters. Go out there and do something. It's good to have um, friends from the Mafansapim Foundation here with us this morning, as Martin said earlier on. And uh, since you were here last year for your visit, um, you have lost one of your most distinguished old boys, of course. I refer to Kofi Annan. Kofi Annan spent a large part of his life trying to work for world health through the World Health Organization in the United Nations Organization and working for peace initiatives again through the United Nations Organization, of course, finally becoming General Secretary for a number of years. Kofi Annan said on one occasion that it was whilst he was at Mafantsipim School that he learned the truth that suffering anywhere is the concern of people everywhere. In other words, we don't bury our heads in the sand when something awful happens. We get up and do something, which is precisely what he did. So those are several different ways of responding when we find ourselves living through events of biblical proportions. We can pretend they're not happening. We can take a fatalistic attitude to what's going on. We can be paralyzed we can f- with, by fear. Or we can get up and do something. But of course there is a question that we as Christians need to ask ourselves when these things happen. What is God doing through these events? What is God saying to us through these events? And how does God want us to respond to these events? The passage in scripture that we just had read to us is one of those passages that we call apocalyptic literature in the Bible. And we find apocalyptic literature a number of stages in the Bible. You probably immediately think of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament or the book of Revelation in the New Testament. But there are a number of passages here and there. And what these various pieces of apocalyptic literature have in common is that they were messages usually shared with people of faith who were going through a time of great upheaval and threat to their own safety. And they contained a message, a basic message, that despite all that was going on, God is, in fact, in control. And that those who suffer will finally be vindicated, though the details of when it happens and how it happens are not given. And this passage from Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, falls into that category of apocalyptic writing. And if we want to understand what the words of Jesus might have meant to those who first read the words as Mark recorded them, it's perhaps helpful just to go back to that century in which they were written. As I'm sure you know, Mark's gospel is considered by 
most biblical scholars to be the first of the four Gospels that was written. Although exactly when it was written is a matter of some debate. It all, all somewhere around about the time of AD 70, which was uh, a significant time for Jewish people and Christian people because it marked the fall of Jerusalem when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. Some people think the gospel may have been written just a year or two before. Others think the gospel may have been written a year or two afterwards. But either way, the gospel of Mark would have been read first of all by Christians who were living through a century of great upheaval on several levels. Just worth pausing to think about what some of those levels of suffering and great upheavals were. First of all, the whole century was one in which there was a growing conflict between Judaism and the Roman Empire. Judea and Galilee were occupied in the days of Jesus, as we know, by the Romans as part of the great Roman Empire. But as the first century went on, there began to be a growing conflict and a number of revolutions against the Romans. And uh, some of these revolutions were started just before Mark wrote his gospel. They went on for a number of years. But as one commentator puts it, the Holy Land of the first century was a volatile place. And these revolutions were put down with typical Roman brutality in AD 70, which was why the city was attacked and the temple was ransacked. So that conflict between Judaism and the Roman Empire was one great upheaval that was going on. And then in the New Testament, of course, we read of the growing conflict between Christians and Judaism. We can't read through the Acts of the Apostles particularly the missionary journeys of St. Paul, without becoming aware that the early Christians were treated with growing suspicion and very often with hostility by members of the Jewish community in various towns and cities. And then another layer of upheaval uh, comes on the scene just before Mark writes his gospel when Christians began to suffer hostile treatment from the Roman Empire. In AD 64, the city of Rome had a very serious fire. Something like 10 of the 14 districts of the city were destroyed in that fire, lay in ruins. And the Emperor Nero, whom some people claimed was mad, decided that he would use the Christians as a scapegoat and he blamed them for the fire. And so a period of persecution of Christians by the Romans began at that time. Add to that the backcloth of what was going on in the Roman Empire. A few years later, in AD 68, Nero committed suicide and there were various contenders for the throne. And the following year, in 69, there were four people who became emperors, one hot on the heels of the other. So the whole, there was a destabilization about the whole of the Roman Empire at that point. And you can add to all that lot what was going on in the world of nature because the world of nature added its own disruptions to these other disturbances because just a few years before the Gospel of Mark was written, there was a massive earthquake in Pompeii. Two towns were severely destroyed and uh, a few years later after his Gospel was written, uh, Mount Vesuvius erupted and that was described as one of the most catastrophic eruptions in European history. You think we live in unsettled times. Well, those who lived in the first century were living in pretty unsettled times as well. 
And those words of Jesus that are recorded by Mark about wars and rumours of wars and famines and earthquakes were actually addressed to people who would be living through these events. And even as Mark was writing his gospel, those words would have resonated with the people to whom he was writing. So why had Jesus said these words? What was he trying to say? What did it mean for people who were going through all these various upheavals, natural upheavals, social upheavals, political upheavals? What do they mean for us? Let me first of all briefly say what he did not mean. Jesus did not say the end of the world is about to happen. Get your calculators out and work out when. May not have escaped your notice that today is the 18th of November. If you write that in figures, it's 181118. I'm sure if I had a fertile mind, I could search through the scriptures and gather together bits and bobs from here and there and persuade you that there's no point in making your sandwiches for tomorrow's lunch because the world is going to end tonight. And if you were gullible, you'd believe me. But I haven't got a fertile mind and you're not gullible, so there's no point in going there. But there are many people who do because as you know, year after year after year, Somebody gets up and says, the world is going to end on, are you ready for it? Jesus was not talking about the end of the world, nor even constructing a sandwich board and going and sitting outside the temple in Jerusalem or in the middle of Rome or outside Victoria Railway Station and saying the end is nigh. Jesus was not saying that. So what did Jesus say? Well, there are a number of clear things that he says in this chapter. Very briefly, four things. First of all, he said, fear not. Fear not. Well, given all the social, political, natural upheavals that were going on in the world, fear not is a bit of a tall order, isn't it? And perhaps you think fear not is a bit of a tall order for us. Even now in this country, going through the political and social upheavals of Brexit. And yet... um, We know that fear is around us all the time. Fear is often used as a weapon. You must do this or else. But Jesus says, fear not. Those often repeated words in the Bible. And remember, of course, that those words were spoken by somebody who took on the powers of evil and darkness at their very worst and who overcame the powers of evil and death in the crucifixion and resurrection. God has not lost control of the world just because of evil, of disasters and upheaval. Then Jesus also said, do not be misled. It comes twice in this chapter, once in the short passage we read and another time a bit later on. We live in days when fake news is all too common And uh, in the religious world, as well as in the political world, there are many who try to deceive us or put their own agenda on things. The simple point is that we cannot assume that everything everybody says to us or every word we read somewhere is true. Sifting what we hear, distinguishing truth from falsehood can be quite a challenge. But remember, those words, do not be misled, were spoken by the one who also gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit to lead us into all the truth. 
And then thirdly, Jesus said, be on your guard. Again, this word appears twice in the chapter. I think that's an especially important word to us as Christians. It means live in the real world, take the presence of, seri- of evil seriously. I don't think we always do that. I remember many years ago, I knew probably one of the most delightful Christian couples I've ever known. They were in their 50s, uh, had a family. Um, they were delightful people to know. They were friendly. Uh, they loved the world of nature. He was a timber salesman and nothing like he liked better than was to be able to sit in his lunch hour uh, in the middle of uh, the lovely countryside enjoying God's creation. They enjoyed music. They loved singing Christian music. But whilst they were enjoying the wonders of nature and singing Handel's Messiah, what they didn't realise was that one by one their three teenage sons got into significant trouble with the police. And all this was happening right under their very noses. And they didn't see it happening. Be on our guard. We need to live in the real world and not view everything through rose-coloured spectacles. And finally, Jesus said, hold on to the end. Hold on to the end in verse 13. In other words, be steadfast and continue to believe. When Rowan Atkins, Atkinson, the... Uh, I knew I'd say that one day, and I've said it this morning. I'm not talking about Mr. Bean. I meant, of course, the other chap, you know. Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury, former Archbishop of Canterbury. They don't even look alike. Rowan Williams focused in one of his books on Mark's gospel. He points out that Christians living in some parts of the world, and he mentioned some of them, such as Afghanistan or northern Nigeria or rural India or Indonesia or the old Soviet Union, he said Christians living in some of those countries will read those words of Jesus in this gospel here in this chapter with a depth of understanding that is hard for the rest of us to understand because these are people who are really going through it now. And he said they will read these words with great understanding because they can see that God is actually not stepping down in some miraculous way to sort everything out, to solve the problems for them. Places where suffering and insecurity are daily facts of life. But these are the very people for whom Mark wrote his gospel and recorded these words of Jesus, writing to restore faith in the God who doesn't step down from heaven to solve our problems miraculously, but who is already in the heart of his world, holding the suffering and the pain in himself and transforming it by indestructible energy of his mercy. Transforming it by the indestructible energy of his mercy hold on to the end God is with us so amongst all these various upheavals that we experience in our world now the wars that leave so much suffering the natural disasters that create so much havoc the political changes that come fast and furious uh, and at the moment are very unpredictable the social changes that sometimes make us feel as if we're living in a different world to the one that we were born into Religious persecution that is a very real experience for some Christians. 
these cha- the challenges that come to our faith every day about is it really reasonable to live, to believe in a God of love in such a world in the face of all these upheavals. Let's take those words of Jesus to heart. Be not afraid. Do not be misled. Be on our guard and hold on to the end.